1 Peter chapter 3. I read to you verses 14 through 17. But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Amen and amen to God's Word. Verse 14 begins with but, because it is contrasting verse 14 with verse 13. 13 told us, Who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? That's the general rule. The exception is verse 14. Truly, one of the exceptions is verse 14, but and if. Now when it says but and if, is the Apostle Peter fatalistic and just saying if circumstances dictate, or is he deeper than that? He's deeper than that by virtue of what's in the middle of verse 17, where it says, if the will of God be so. So when it says but and if, God has something different to do in your life and He brings some suffering into it, then here's how you should react. Even though verse, even though verse 13 told us, if you follow good and you do right in your life, like verses 10 through 12 describe and like verses 8 through 9 describe, you should get along with everyone. Ordinarily. Generally. That's the rhetorical question. Who's going to harm you if you're following that which is good? The Lord's going to be with you and most men are going to find you pleasant company for them to have around in their places of employment, doing business with them, living next door to them, and so forth. But, and if, and sometimes the Lord does make a difference. And these people that we are reading about in 1 Peter had a far more difficult life than we have. They did suffer persecution. They were third-class citizens in those Roman provinces that are listed in the first verse of 1 Peter chapter 1. They were second-class citizens because they were Jews. They were third-class citizens because they were Christians. They were Christian Jews. They weren't liked by the Jews. They weren't liked by the Gentiles. They were different. And you know, I've already shown you a little exercise that you can see. Peter taught brotherly love in all five chapters. Peter mentions suffering and persecution even more than that in all five chapters because that was their lot. And so he's explained to them there is a general rule that if you're living a righteous life, God's with you and other men will be with you and they'll find you acceptable. This is so true that a woman married to an unconverted husband, if she conducted herself wisely, even had the potential of converting him to the faith. That's how far proper conduct can go. And that's what Peter went to in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse the first six verses, about a woman married to an unconverted husband. He didn't start running and looking for excuses to divorce the man. He looked for, conform your life to what God wants you to do as a wife 
and you may be able to win him. And we can win those around us when we live righteously ordinarily. If you're guarding your tongue, and if you're doing what's right, if you're eschewing evil, and you're seeking to be a peacemaker, even on the job, men will want you around. And uh, men will want you around. Pharaoh wanted Joseph around. All the leaders of Babylon and Persia, until Daniel died, wanted Daniel around because there was found in him an excellent spirit. And an excellent spirit is what we've had described to us in verses 8 down through 12. But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake. Now while you're doing what verses 8 through 12 describe, you end up being persecuted for it. What should you do? What should your reaction be? Oh my, Christianity doesn't work. You sound like the plant that when the Word of God was sown into the hearts of this particular kind of hearer, the man sprang up with joy at hearing the gospel. The plant sprang up with joy at hearing the gospel. But then when the sun rose upon that plant, because that seed was sown in stony ground where there was only a little bit of soil, it didn't have a deep root system, and so that sun beating upon it, it withers away and doesn't bear fruit. Is that our reaction when the going gets tough, even while we're living righteously? That should not be our reaction. It shouldn't be theirs 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote them, and it shouldn't be ours 2,000 years later. It says, but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Happy are ye. You should be happy about it. You should be thankful about it. If you do what is right and get in trouble for it or have to pay a price for it, you should be thankful. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Is this the same gospel that Peter preached? Identical. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the evidence that you're on your way to heaven. Because suffering with Christ shows an evidence of being Christ. Verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. When they do it because you're living the Christian life for my sake, you're blessed. Rejoice and be exceeding glad is what it says in Matthew 5.12. Those words are hard to read and hard to preach, but that's what it says about being persecuted and men reviling you, despising you and hating you. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Here's a couple reasons. For great is your reward in heaven. You make certain that God has a reward for you in heaven by suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ. It is an evidence of eternal life. And for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. It puts you in good company. Because that's the way they have treated the good prophets that went before these disciples that heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So when we come back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and it says, Happy are ye. That's the proper reaction. That's the proper response 
when there is division caused and offense raised and persecution mounted against those that are living a righteous life, we should be happy about it. It's painful. This is hard. This takes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in a life. And our brother Stephen, for 52 weeks, with a substitute on a couple of occasions, gave us 52 martyrs that fulfilled this, didn't they? They fulfilled it. They were happy. They were thankful. They prayed for their persecutors. They were better than this population and this world deserves. They showed themselves exceptional. And we heard about them week after week. And it was part of our worship to remember those that have gone before us and have fought a battle that we don't have to fight. Our battle is different. They had our battle plus that one. We just have our battles. But oh Lord, help us to be like them. What an illustrious company conducted themselves so magnanimously and so wonderfully, even in the heat and trials and torture of their punishment and then dying for the cause of Christ. And some of them a slow death, a painful death. But they were happy about it. They rejoiced. They knew that they were suffering in most cases at the hands of Rome and her daughters. They knew Scripture was being fulfilled. They were happy about it. We should be happy. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, and brethren, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, I do not want to chase this point very far, but we've got these two statements. Who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Are both true. Both are absolutely true. In their particular context, following that which is good is not identical to living godly in Christ Jesus. Living godly in Christ Jesus is standing fast and true to the doctrine and practice of the Lord Jesus Christ in perilous times of the last days. Following that which is good is being personally good to all those around you, and ordinarily, generally, you will find favor and grow in favor with God and men, which Samuel did in 1 Samuel 2.26, which you can, according to Proverbs 3, 3 and 4, and which Jesus did. However, when you take your position on Bible doctrine and practice, especially in perilous times, there will arise religious tyrants, just like they did in Jesus' day, that will persecute. And if you take a strong stand, remember where 2 Timothy 3.12 is found. It's found in a long 21-verse description of the perilous times of the last days when other Christians are departing from the faith and compromising the worship of God. If you take a strong stand for godliness in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. But both statements are still true. They're in different contexts. They're in different places. that's just enough on that one because I know when you read that verse 13 it sounds so good and then verse 14 starts off with a but showing that there's an exception right here in context by our fisherman brother and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ Peter but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake happy are ye and be not afraid of their terror neither be troubled don't be worried about it because God's on their side Remember how 12 ended? The Lord's eyes are upon the righteous. His ears are open into their prayers. And so a person can go, you can go to the stake. God would give you the, the fortitude for it. God would give you the grace for it. 
You can go to the stake and be burned. You could go into the center of the Colosseum and be ripped to shreds by lions or cut to pieces by other, by gladiators. You could do that if you do what verse 15 tells you to do. And that's to put something in your heart that will drive the fear and the trouble out of your heart. Notice the last part of 14 says, and be not afraid of their terror. They're going to try to terrorize you. They're going to try to intimidate you. They're going to try to frighten you into recanting your doctrine and confessing their doctrine. These, This audience had to literally face it. We don't. We'll get threatened sometimes by family or friends. Well, if that's the kind of religion you're going to practice, I don't want to have anything else to do with you. Sometimes that can be in a home. Sometimes it can be a spouse. Sometimes it can be friends or more distant family members. But we don't let that terror trouble us. The Lord told us it would come. Did the Lord tell us that there would be a sword? I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And we prepare ourselves ahead of time by believing what Scripture said. But listen, if your wife leaves you for the truth's sake, it's painful. If family leaves you for the truth's sake, it's painful. If colleagues leave you, if a church leaves you, if you have to withdraw from a church for the truth's sake, it's painful. You say, it sounds like I could lose everyone. Thank you. I'm thinking of our brother Paul. In the last chapter that he penned, the last chapter that Paul penned, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I am now ready to be offered. He said, all men forsook me. No man stood with me. But do you know what 12 has already promised you? The Lord stood with me. And not only did the Lord stand with Paul, the Lord delivered him out of the mouth of the lion, and Paul was confident that the Lord would continue to deliver him and see him safely into his everlasting kingdom and had a crown of life waiting for him. And to all those of you and me that also love his appearing. That is exciting. Because 12 told us that the Lord's with you. His eyes are beholding you. His countenance is towards you. He is smiling upon your life, even though he might have chosen some persecution for the gospel's sake, for his glory and your profit. His, his face is towards you. And so, what if they all leave me? Should you be terrorized? All your minister friends leave you, Dad? Do they threaten you that if you believe that stuff, you're going to lose all your friends? Has anyone else ever in, in here ever heard things like that? You know what it says here to us? And we do not deserve these words hardly compared to the brethren that got this epistle and opened its pages and read it. It says there in verse 14, Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Don't even worry about it. I'll stand with you. Amen. I know I've already told, but I'd almost like to repeat all my words again from Second Timothy chapter 4. All men forsook me. No man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. If the Lord's standing with you, you can go to the stake. When we sit in a room like this and we think about being burned at the stake, we tend in the direction of, I don't think I could do it. And the Lord doesn't give you that kind of grace at all times because He wants you trusting in Him. 
You know, those people that stood on trial and they were confronted about their faith and their practice, they may not have had that energy right then, but they took one step at a time. They are asking me right now whether what I believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, what I believe about the Lord's Supper, what I believe about baptism, I will state the truth. And one step at a time, God will lead you and He will sustain you at the stake. But this is the instruction. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Well, how do I get rid of terror? I don't like fire. When I hold my finger in a match one second too long, it burns and bites and stings and hurts. It does, doesn't it? Fire is painful. How would I be able to handle it? By filling yourself with the next verse. So that there's no room for terror or trouble. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Notice that but. I know I'm crazy about buts in the Bible. Because those buts are making contrasts that help us understand how the apostle is arguing, how the Holy Spirit is arguing with us. Neither, don't let their terror affect you. Don't be troubled. But here, here's the antidote. Here's the cure. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The higher you can get the Lord and the more special He can be to you. Listen, just me going through 2 Timothy 4 with you, does that help? All men forsook me. No, this is the third time. No man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. Does that, does that stir you up? Does, uh, reading about the martyr, does reading Matthew 5, 10 through 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. Jesus is crying to you from heaven. Don't compromise. Don't back off because you're exalting God and Jesus Christ as high as you can by fulfilling the first part of verse 15. Verse 15 would strengthen you so that you wouldn't be afraid when they lit the wood at your feet. Do you know some of those martyrs that our brother read to us said, you don't need to chain me. When I think about it right now, you'd need big chains. And I'm not trying to be foolish about something very serious. But we are weak in our flesh until the time and God will supply us. And this is how He supplies us. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Since I already spent some time on this this morning when we began, I don't need to say much. I love this little expression. It is my favorite out of this passage. I love, I want to, I love loving life. I want good days. I want good days for all of you and I want all of you to love life. But I know on the testimony of scripture that the source and the basis for the best life is to do the first clause of verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. How is the Lord God special to you? How do you make Him special to you? How do you think about Him in your heart? How do you embrace Him? How do you talk to Him? What passages of the Bible do you love the most? We've had blogs about the glory of God. We've had blogs about the glory of Christ. What verses delight you about God? What makes you think like David that you want to do something exceeding magnificent for the Lord? And the most magnificent and exceeding magnificent thing we can do for Him would be to lay down our lives for Him. But we don't, we also can live our lives for Him. How do you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? It is to learn all you can about the God of the Bible. It is to embrace that being. It is to love Him and to fear Him. And in Deuteronomy 10-12, the fear of God and the love of God are put hand in hand because the two of them go together. The fear of God is not a terror 
terror. It's not a paranoia of God. It is a reverential respect for Him and not wanting to displease Him. But how do you do that to your heart? Every one of us is different. I have preached knowing God to you. I have preached He is altogether lovely to you about Christ. It's the Word of... Do you find the Word of God that speaks about God and speaks about Jesus Christ, your favorite passages? Do you love to embrace them? Do you love to slow down and just feed on individual words about Him? Right. I can't start... If I, go, if I go any further on this point, I'll get way off track for a long time. But what passages in Scripture light you up? Feed yourself with them. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. They can come by and say, if you don't recant, we're going to burn you at the stake. If you don't recant, we're going to throw you in burlap bags and tie a cement block to them and throw them in a river. If you don't recant, we're going to slit your stomach open and fill it with corn and let loose hungry hogs on you. And things a whole lot worse. Do you know how you get rid of terror and trouble? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. There's a God in heaven. He's smiling at me right now. He's of infinite power and wisdom. And this event is only happening according to His will who controls the entire universe. The middle part of verse 17. He's got a reward for me. He's chosen me to do this. He's going to give me grace for it. His face is smiling toward me. Paul did it. Others did it. They are a great cloud of witnesses. I can run this race. And I will take it one step at a time and God will bless you to do it. And you do it by just thinking about all the perfections and attributes and promises of God and putting your trust in Him. And it drives away terror and trouble. And it did for them, didn't it? What a, what a list of testimonies that we had. I love these words right here, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. God is already holy. You don't add one whit of holiness to Him, no matter what you do. Elihu taught that very plainly in the book of Job. You might be able to affect another man by your sins or by your goodness, but you can't touch the Almighty. So what does it mean to sanctify Him? It's in your heart, in your mind. It's, it, that's why it says in your heart to consecrate Him and to lift Him up and to exalt Him and to honor Him. When was the last time you expostulated with the Lord and told Him you loved Him? I mean, just you just told Him you loved Him. Not in a prayer. Well, unless, you, unless this talking with the Lord you call prayer, prayer usually involves asking for things, and what I'm talking about right now is really not asking for much except to know Him better. What songs do you delight in the most? Did you like praise to the Lord the Almighty this morning? What did you sing on the way to church? O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds Thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, Thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul. Oh Lord, these people and I want more of You. Amen. We are not content nor happy until You show us more of You. We want to sanctify You in our hearts. 
Nothing will move you. Nothing will move you if you've sanctified him in your hearts. I'm me, you're you. I don't know what moves you. When I read 2 Samuel 7, and David has whipped all his enemies, it's time to retire. He sits down in his house. He realizes, look at this palace that I'm living in, and God's being worshipped in a tent. I will build him a house worthy of his name. Love David. There's more told about David than the next ten men in the Bible put together. About how he, his heart worked. And his heart was a heart after God's own heart. Nathan the prophet comes in and David says, Listen, I'm going to build the Lord a house. Look at that tent over there. He deserves something better than that. Look at this house that I'm in. I'm going to put the Lord in something that's worthy of His name. Go ahead and do all that is in your heart. Nathan didn't get very far away and God said, Go back in there. David ain't going to build me a house. He's a man of war. He's got blood in his hands. His son will build me a house. So he comes back in. He tells David, the Lord's not going to let you build a house. Your son's going to build his house. But the Lord tells me to tell you, he's going to build you a house. Do you know what that meant? Do you think that meant Solomon? It meant Solomon about that much. Do you think it meant Rehoboam? About that much. You know, not not quite. Do you think it meant Hezekiah, Josiah, and those great kings? It meant the Lord Jesus Christ that much. You tell David, no one has ever, as long as I've been leading this this church of Israel, no one has ever worried about the fact that I was being worshipped in a tent. He wants to build me a house? Tell him I'm going to build him a house. And then the rest of that chapter is God, David, God, David. It's marvelous. All I did that for, because that moves me. I don't know what moves you. If that moves you, terrific. I found a a soul brother and a soul sister. The Bible's filled with this stuff. I'm sorry that the outline is not published, though the sermons are, because I've got a problem releasing the outline until it's perfect. But there's a knowing God outline that I'll send to you in its rough form. It's long. And it's filled with stuff. But do you know how to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? You can then meet physical problems. You can meet family problems. You can meet financial problems. You can see troubles in our country. You can be persecuted for the gospel's sake. You can face death for the gospel's sake. And you can drive the terror and the trouble away by having lifted up the Lord so high in your heart, it fills every crevice and there's no room for fear. Lord, help us to that end. Help us to love your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, more. That we would willingly, gladly lay down our lives for Him who gave His life for us. 1 Peter 3.15 This is how you get ready if you're going to be persecuted. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means to consecrate and exalt and honor Him and put Him up and make Him special and fill your mind in all its thoughts and fill your heart with all of its affections with the Lord Jesus Christ and with God the Father. Then, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. These people are going to be put on trial. 
Do you know how we typically use 1 Peter 3.15? We typically use it. You're working on the job. You're showing some... You pray over your food. You know, you pray over your food in the employee lunchroom, and so somebody says to you, are you a Christian? You think, ah, 1 Peter 3.15 is about to be fulfilled. Well, that's good. But to this audience, it was a little different. It was being put on trial for their lives, for their imprisonment, for the loss of all their assets. Be ready to give an answer when you're confronted about what you believe is the hope of Christianity, when you're confronted about the Lord Jesus Christ, the leader, the founder, the savior, the priest, the apostle, the king of Christianity, be ready always to give an answer. And that is why we need to hear the Word of God preached over and over. We need to read Proverbs commentaries. We need to think about verses sent to us in updates. We need to read the Bible. We need to talk about the Bible among ourselves so that we are filled with the knowledge of the Word of God. The certain words of truth is what they're called in Proverbs chapter 22. So that when we are asked, we don't give feelings. Well, I believe. Well, I think. Well, I feel we give the certain words of truth an answer to those that ask us. Proverbs 22, verses 17 through 21 are five wonderful verses about having those words of wisdom and knowledge and truth fit in our lips so that when we're put on the spot, out comes a reason, not a feeling. Reason is a logical term, a proof and evidence of our hope in Christ Jesus, which is based on our faith in the Word of God. And we should be always ready to do that. Brethren, how long have you been hearing the truth? You must look at the time that you've heard the truth and ask, who, what am I? Am I someone that is ready for strong meat? Or do I still have to go over the rudiments again? Because the Apostle Paul criticized the Hebrews in the last three verses of Hebrews chapter 5 by still needing milk instead of strong meat. And the way you advance from milk to meat is by reason of use. We keep taking the Word of God and applying it and doing it. Take the Word of God, apply it, and do it. And our senses to discern good and evil grow from there. Be ready always to give an answer to every man. An employer, a master, a slave owner, a magistrate, a tribunal of Rome... Give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. And how should you do it? With meekness and fear. Meekness, not haughty. Not like Apache evangelism, an expression that we've used from the past. The Bible says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure God will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Not haughty, meek instead, not proud, not pompous, not arrogant, not overbearing, and fearful. Knowing that if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be in their shoes and they'd be in ours. Fearful. Like it says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if one of you be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, never presuming on the next moment, but trusting the Lord for the next moment. 
We just take one moment at a time and giving our answer and trust the Lord to take care of us. Were there some men that fulfilled this? In the pages, is there a history book in the New Testament? It's called the Acts of the Apostles. And it it is special stuff. The, did the Apostle Paul ever give trial standing on trial for his life? More than once? More than twice? More than thrice? Yes, it's in the book of Acts. But listen to Peter. Since Peter wrote this, let's grab Peter. Asked a reason of the hope. Listen to this. They heal a lame man. i got to read a few verses. Just enjoy this. It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? That is asking a reason of the hope that was in them. Their hope-filled lives of being able to heal lame men and that they were on their way to heaven. By what power and by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Do you like that answer? Isn't that a glorious answer? What happened to Peter? Peter ran away from a little maid girl just a few days earlier. He was full of the Holy Ghost. Lord, fill us with the Holy Ghost. Lord, fill us that we might think of Christ and His power and His glory and that we would have no terror and that we would not be troubled when we are confronted about the truth that we believe. 1 Peter chapter 3. Oh, we could, I could give you more examples. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. And let's do it meekly and let's do it with fear because if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be just like them. If, it, if not for the grace of God, we'll be overtaken in a fault as fast or faster than they have been. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. The next thing you need, having a good conscience. How do you get a good conscience? You do what is right. You obey the Bible and you obey your conscience. It's the candle of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. When Paul was on trial for his life in Acts 23, the opening words out of his mouth, I have had a good conscience from youth, from birth, in serving God. You know, the high priest didn't, hadn't had such a conscience, I guess, because he said, smack him in the mouth. Do you know what Paul did? Paul said, God will smite thee. I've told you this recently, thou whited wall. Why are you treating me not after the, not after the law? And they said, don't you know that's God's high priest? And Paul apologized for it. And that's how you have a good conscience. 
You're caught in front of a large crowd. You've just made a mistake and you apologize for it. That's how you keep a good conscience. Acts 23, the first five verses or so. But notice this. These people were persecuted. They were third-class citizens. Their religion was an offense because they preached there was another king. You preach another king in the Roman Empire, people get upset because they think that you're preaching against Caesar. And they weren't preaching against Caesar. They were the most loyal citizens Caesar probably had throughout his empire of people that didn't speak his language and lived in another place in the boot of Italy. But no, they're accused of evil doing, as it describes in this context. But what do you do? They're going to try to terrorize you. What do you do? You fill your heart with thoughts of the God of heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 15. You're always ready to give an answer because you fed yourself on the Word of God and because your conversation with others was about the Word of God. So your mind and your tongue is filled with it and you're ready to let it go. And you have a clear conscience. Oh, brethren... Proverbs 28 and verse 1. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Now which one do you want to be on trial for your life? How do you get there? Righteous living. This, everything fits together. Of course it fits together. It's by one author, the Holy Spirit. In this context, all fits together. But we have a good conscience. We know that we have obeyed the Lord. We know that we have kept His precepts. There is only one way to have a clear conscience when you need it. And that's to be obeying it and keeping the commandments of Scripture when you don't need it. Do you, do you understand that? When you're on trial, it is too late. They're going to vet you. Our nation loves to do that to everyone. They're going to vet you and pull up every little stinking thing they can about you. What is your conscience? Have you confessed your sins? Have you forsaken your sins? And have you sanctified the Lord God in your heart? Don't be hopeless right now as I present it to you that way. Because I'll tell you about David, the man after God's own heart. If they vetted him, could they find some faults in his life? Yes, but God forgave him and he was the measuring stick of every king that came after him and he was a man after God's own heart and God delighted in him and he died in perfect peace with God and God built him a house that stands forever and the man sitting at God's right hand at this very hour has as an alternative name, David. Don't lose hope. God is able to forgive all your trespasses and sins. He's able to wash you whiter than snow. He's able to take away all that junk. But oh, brethren, when we walk out of this place today, we have today before us, let's live today as if a week from now, we're going to be on trial for our lives. Because you know what's coming? We're going to be on trial before the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And let's be... let's. To have a good conscience in that day. To meet Him confidently, as it says in 1 John chapter 3. The first three verses. And if it's not there, it's the last couple verses of chapter 2. Let's meet Him that way. So it says, having a good conscience. Peter has transitioned from those verses 8 through 13. And now he's explaining to them, but if you suffer, he's going to do this in every chapter. Suffering for the gospel's sake. 
And so here he is. Here's how you handle it. But and if, if God makes a choice, I'm I'm at verse 14, but and if you suffer for righteousness sake, if God chooses to bring something about in your life to cause you some persecution and some suffering for living a righteous life, be happy about it. (laughs) That's how he starts off. Be happy about it. Don't be afraid of their terror. Don't even be troubled by it. Don't be upset. Don't be worried. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Next. Be ready to give an answer by knowing the word of God and knowing what you believe. Then have a good conscience. That Verse 16, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they can accuse you of anything they want, but you know before God by the candle of the Lord that shines inside you that you have not done what they are accusing you of. Having a good conscience. It is a powerful thing to have a good conscience. That's why Paul would start off his first sentence, I have a good conscience, and I've always had one. Because even when he was persecuting Christians, I thought within my heart, O King Agrippa, to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. Even then he had a good conscience because he believed that God had told him to persecute Christians because he didn't know better. He said, I did it in unbelief. God counted him faithful because he had a good conscience even persecuting Christians. Yes, I believe that absolutely because that's what the Bible says about Paul. God just picked Paul up, turned him around, put him back down, and his legs were churning. And when he hit the ground, there was dust and dirt flying. And he went in a totally different direction. And boy, he went straight into the synagogue at Damascus and preached Jesus as Christ. What a changed life. Oh, brethren, we're going to go out of here today. You're going to start building your conscience. Right now, you're building your conscience. Do you hate me? What have I said that's irritated you today? Do you hate me? Do you hate God's Word? Are you bored out of your mind? Can't wait to get home, watch the NFL. Can't wait to get home and go to work. Can't wait to do this or do that. What, where's your conscience right now? Is your conscience, boy, if your conscience is convicting you, I want to sanctify the Lord God in my heart more than I have before. That's a good conscience. That's how we want to walk out of this service. That's why we have assembled today. We haven't assembled to hear me. I'm not worth hearing. We've assembled to hear the words of God presented to us about sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts. And let's be convicted about that. And let's go out with a conscience that will guard our lips so that we won't break verse 9. That we will be of one mind, having compassion one of another, being pitiful, being courteous. And keep verse 8. That we will give a blessing for railing against us in verse 9. That we will guard our lips in verse 10. That we will guard our life in verse 11. That we will be a peacemaker in verse 11. Let's do those things. We can have a good conscience. And how do you build a good conscience? One day at a time. Then we're going to stand, every one of us is going to stand before the Lord. We may never stand on trial before men for our lives, but let's have a good conscience. Where, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, so what? As of evildoers, they may be ashamed. Do you know how we shut the mouths of our enemies? By living a perfect life. Shut their mouths. They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Let them come together and their testimonies won't match like they didn't match for the Lord Jesus. They could not get two witnesses to come together in agreement that the Lord Jesus Christ had done anything wrong. Let's have a conscience like that. Let them accuse us of whatever they may. Let's shame them. Let's defend the gospel. Let's adorn it by consciences that are powerful and strong. The greatest men in human history, they are recorded in the Bible. For the most part, those men have clear consciences. 
Lord, forgive us secret sins. Psalm 19, David prayed, Lord, save me from secret sins. Save me from presumptuous sins. Save me from both kinds of sins. Secret sins sometimes not even we know about. But there's other little pet sins that every human heart in its depravity wants to keep secret. It may be in thought. It may be in word. It may be in action. It may be in conduct. It may be where you go. It may be what you read. It may be what you look at. Maybe what you think. Maybe what you don't do. What you should be doing. All those things make up your conscience. And when you have a clear and a good and a powerful and strong conscience, you can be and are a mighty man. And you'd be able to face terror and trouble like this and it wouldn't move you. Because you'd have sanctified the Lord God in your heart. You'd have a ready answer from God's Word for their questions. And you would know that your life is clean. That is how we ought to live. That will make our church great. That will make our men great. That will make our women great. Marriages great and families great. Lord, save us from playing with Him. We will stand on trial. And we will give an account. Oh, there's forgiveness with the Lord that He may be feared. Isn't that a great combination? I love that combination. There's forgiveness with the Lord that He may be feared. You confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He throws those sins behind His back and He will press forward with you. Did Peter ever make a mistake? Did Peter ever sin? Did Peter sin big time? Denying the Lord Jesus Christ three times? Did he sin again in Galatians chapter 2 by playing the hypocrite about the gospel? Didn't slow him down, did it? You just confess it and you go forward. Did Peter get two epistles in the Bible named after him? The Lord is so gracious. If he would mark iniquities, who would stand? But we can stand in the shed blood and the substitutionary death and the perpetual intercession of the judge's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, for it is better. You know why you should do all these things? It's better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Now, if you've got a clean conscience, you haven't done anything wrong. Let's never be on trial for what we've done wrong. That's terrible. Let's be on trial for, he loves the Lord Jesus Christ and he's weird. They do strange things. Following the Lord Jesus Christ. If God chooses to put some suffering in our life, let's always make sure the suffering is there because we did things God's way. We did what was right. We had a good conscience. We sanctified the Lord God in our hearts. We gave a good answer from God's Word. And if we end up suffering that way, it's better. It's better than if we got in trouble for doing something wrong. And I know that it sounds kind of... (laughs) The Bible's written this way. That is an understatement. In verse 17, it's a whole lot better. It is fabulously better to, to suffer persecution for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. This has already been taught over in chapter 2. On the job, if we're buffeted for our faults, it's no, uh, you're not really suffering for righteousness sake if you're being buffeted for your faults. But if you're being buffeted for doing well out of conscience toward God, that's thankworthy and acceptable in His sight. I hope I've said enough for you to understand these verses. For you to have the good life, 
for our church to be as great as it should be, for you to be peacemakers, ruling your tongue, for the Lord's face to be upon you and smiling upon you, to be happy if we're ever put into a situation of persecution. I hope that you'll go home and sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, that you'll think about that conscience every time you sin the rest of this day. You're defiling that conscience and don't do it. It will strengthen you and give you power the likes of which you haven't had before to the degree that you do what is right and honor that conscience in the light of God's word. Right. And if they ever find, if they ever put us on trial, let it be for righteousness sake and for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. That's why Jesus said, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and do all manner of evil against you for my sake. That's first Peter three. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Thy word have I taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day long. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, including 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. And I hate every false way. Right. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.